We return this evening to our series on Mark, and we want to read, which will also be our text, Mark 6, verses 6b through 13. Mark 6, second half of verse 6 through 13. Let's hear the Word of God. And he, Jesus, went round about the villages teaching. And he called unto him the twelve, and began to send them forth by two and two, and gave them power over unclean spirits, and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals, and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. And whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you, when ye depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Thus far the reading of God's sacred word. Our text this evening, dear church family, is from Mark 6, verses 6b through 13. And the theme we want to pursue with God's help is the twelve commissioned by Jesus. I actually have seven points tonight, and I'm going to unveil them as we move through for clarity's sake. Seven things that Jesus does that sends forth his twelve apostles into active ministry. At the beginning of our text, Jesus is leaving unbelieving Nazareth. You perhaps recall before this past church festival season running from Advent to Pentecost, we ended last fall the series of sermons on the Gospel of Mark by looking at Nazareth's persistent unbelief. You see that at the beginning of verse 6, he marveled because of their unbelief. So Jesus leaves Nazareth, and now he goes around from village to village preaching the gospel. And it's at this time that he commissions the twelve apostles to go out and to assist him in that preaching, to go out on a teaching, preaching, mission trip on their own. Now, this commission that he gives them in our text tonight is not a universal and binding commission. You can't make a one-to-one parallel with our commission today in all of its details. After all, it was a commission just to the Jews in Israel, not yet to the Gentiles. But there are embedded in this commission a number of principles, general principles, that we can learn from today in how the work of Jesus must be done. So Jesus makes plain in these verses before us tonight that his work must be done in his way. His work must be done in his way in accord with his word, shall it know his blessing. So let me repeat that because that's important. His work must be done in his way in accord with his word, shall it know his blessing. So in this commission, Jesus tells his twelve what to do, but also how to do it. It matters, in other words. It matters to the head of the church how he is represented, how he is served. It matters to Jesus Christ 
how his work is conducted, carried out in the church, beyond the church, on the mission field, in church plants, in one-to-one evangelism. He alone is all-wise, and he alone can know how his work can best succeed. And so Jesus has this supreme authority and the sole right to command all of his workers in how his gospel ministry is to be accomplished. So that's what we're going to see tonight. Now, this is unpacked in our text, step by step, through seven things that Jesus does. Seven things. Seven Christ-centered, Christ-mandated specifics. The first you find already in verse 6b. And he went round about the villages teaching. So point one is, Jesus sets the example. Jesus sets the example. The example of how to minister. 6b is a picture of his lifestyle. It's a picture, a snapshot, if you will, of his internal sense, a profound calling to preach and to teach. It says, he went round about the villages. Round about the villages. In the Greek, it's actually a word that means circular. He he had an itinerant ministry. He just kept going around in circles, as it were, all throughout Galilee. He was constantly on the move, in other words. Constantly teaching. Constantly preaching. Going into the highways and byways with the Word of God. Teaching people around the villages. And the word teaching there is a, is an interesting word. A common word. Didasco in Greek. It means to inform the mind in order to shape the will and to change the life. You see, right thinking as Dr. Barrett always says to us in the seminary, produces, by the grace of the Spirit, right living. Jesus is teaching them in his preaching in order to inform the mind so that the will would be shaped and the life would be changed. So Jesus is saying, that's my ministry, continual teaching and preaching. And the word teaching here is in the present tense. Which means he's always going around the villages. This is his lifestyle. This is what he's called to do. Jesus of all people could say, Woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. He's always teaching the gospel of salvation from sin. He's always teaching deliverance from destruction in and through himself. There was never a more industrious teacher slash preacher than Jesus Christ. He's the one. He's the model. And if any of us would try to keep up with him, even for a couple of days, we'd, we'd be exhausted. You follow in all four Gospels some of, some of what he did in one day. It's amazing. He was just going from place to place to place. You see, Jesus knew that his time was short. He knew all things ahead of time. In fact, he knew he was only, only going to live till the age of 33, that he only had three years of ministry. So he knew that the night was coming when no man shall work and that the work of his father was critical. So he taught tirelessly, energetically, persistently, unwaveringly. He taught with divine unction, divine authority. In fact, this is the third preaching tour ministry we read of in the book of Mark that Jesus engaged in. The first major teaching and preaching tour happened way back in Mark 1, verses 35 through 39. We read there that he was in prayer before the crack of dawn to commune with his Father in verse 35. Then in verses 36 through 38, he said to his Apostle, his disciples, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, for therefore came I forth. He's saying, I came to earth, not just to suffer and die, but I came to earth to preach, to teach the gospel 
And then in verse 39 of Mark 1, it says, he preached in their synagogues throughout all of Galilee. So as soon as he began to preach, he did a preaching tour all throughout Galilee. And then he did a second one. You can read of that. The most detailed account is in Luke 8. It came to pass afterward he went through every city and every village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and certain women which had been healed of their evil spirits and infirmities. And so, first Jesus is teaching, preaching, largely by himself with just a few gathered around him. By Luke 8, he's got the 12 gathered around him and a group of women, and he's preaching, teaching everywhere. And especially these women were showing him their life's devotion, uh, ministering to him also of their physical, uh, financial substance, that is. So they were supporting him. And then now in Mark 6, we read of this third preaching tour. Perhaps there were more that are not recorded. And this preaching tour, Mark, of course, Mark is always the briefest gospel writer. He condenses it down into eight words. He went around about the villages teaching. That's it. Matthew of this very same preaching tour says, Matthew 9.35, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But I love those words, all the cities, all the villages. You know, Galilee, Galilee was about 50 miles wide, or, or, or 50, 25 miles wide and 50 miles uh, from north to, north to south. Every little village, every little hamlet, every city, Jesus didn't pass any of them by. And this is where his ministry was most fruitful. In Jerusalem, wow, he was persecuted everywhere. It was hard for him. But in Galilee, he had a good reputation. It was in Galilee that the people hung upon his words. In Galilee, he performed most of his miracles and parables. You know, if you read through the Gospels, you can read about 32 parables. Well, 19 of them are told in Galilee. And there were 33 miracles, and 25 of them were performed in Galilee. This was a driving priority of Jesus' public ministry. He's going through Galilee, going to the rural, rural people, going to the inhabitants of cities and villages and towns, and he's preaching the Word. He's burning with passion and zeal to bring people to the Word and to bring the Word to people. And you see, in all of this, he sets himself up as a model, a model for the twelve, a model for ministers of every age, a model for elders and deacons, but also a model in a certain way for every single believer. Because even if we're in a so-called secular profession, you see, this is to be the driving urgent priority in our lives as well. We are to promote the teaching of God's Word with our lifestyle, with our words, with our daily prayers, with our support of the church, the, the seminary, our Christian education, our, our church's ministries. Uh, we're to do it through one-on-one, speaking to our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow students. The question for all of us tonight is, is something of this passion in us, something of Jesus' passion, a driving passion of urgent priority to reach as many people as we can in our short little lifetime? With the Word of God, is Jesus the model that we seek to emulate with our lifestyle and with our conversation? So Jesus, that's point one. Jesus sets the example. Now point two is Jesus calls the twelve. Jesus calls the twelve. Notice that in verse 7a. And he called unto him the twelve. He called unto him the twelve. Now, 
This may seem confusing to you because you, you might say, well, I thought he already called them. In fact, I thought he called them twice. And you'd be right. This is actually their third call. Their third call. And the word call here uh, is a special Greek word, pros kaleo. And pros means face-to-face. Kaleo means to be called. To be called face-to-face. To stand face-to-face before the one who issues the call. To send you out. To carry out His will. That's what these men were experiencing. This inward call. Jesus said, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus didn't just consult these men. He didn't just say, well, are you, are you, you know, are you willing to go? He summons them. It's a good translation of the word call here. He summons them. He he calls them irresistibly. It's a non-negotiable call. An irresistible call. A woe unto me if I don't do it call. An obligatory call. A sovereign call. But it's the third call. And what are the other two? Well, the first call, of course, was a call to discipleship. That happened already in John 1, didn't it? A summons to salvation. An effectual call to repentance and faith. Every single believer knows that call. In John 1, you can read, there's other chapters too, but I mentioned that chapter because there Jesus calls John and Andrew and later in the chapter, Philip, and then still later, Nathaniel. All are effectually called to salvation. Every believer is irresistibly called to salvation. So that's, What happened to all these twelve? They got saved by Jesus. And that's, of course, critical for every one of us. You must be born again. You must be effectually called by Jesus Christ. Every time the gospel goes out, of course, tonight, as I'm preaching to you, the call goes out to everyone who hears it. Here, everyone who's listening, live stream, Everyone who will listen to the sermon later, on sermon audio or elsewhere, the call goes out to everyone who hears the word. But there's a difference between the general call of the gospel and the irresistible, effectual, internal call to salvation. The Holy Spirit is responsible for both, but only the irresistible call you see, ends up in salvation. Without the irresistible call, the effectual call of the Holy Spirit, we'll just go on and on and on and on throughout our entire lifetime and not respond to God's call, even though it makes no sense not to respond to it. We're depraved. We're sinners. That's who we are. And that's why we won't. We're dead in sins and trespasses. As you you heard this morning, Lord's Day 3, except We are regenerated by God. We will not respond to this call. But these twelve did respond. It was an irresistible call. Follow me. And they left everything and followed him and became his disciple. The second call, actually, is a call to ministry. Jesus called them not just to be saved, but to be trained If I can put it this way, he called them into his three-year seminary training program. They would go with him for three years. They would watch him. They would listen to him. They would be witnesses of his teaching. They would be taught by him. They would learn how to do ministry by leaving behind their nets and accompanying Jesus throughout these dusty roads of Galilee, hearing him teach, receiving the mind of Christ, observing him in his day-to-day ministry in this three-year training program. So in that sense, he called them, didn't he? They had an inward call also to ministry. That's a separate calling. I told you a story a few weeks ago of a 13-year-old boy I met who was saved through reading one of the Building on the Rock books. And 
And after I talked to him for a while, I said, do you think the Lord might be calling you to the ministry? He said, well, I, I would love that, but remember what he said? I need to be called to that. That's a second calling. And, and the boy is right. You need to have a call to be a church planter, a missionary, a minister, a missionary, a pastor, a call that you can say, what one to me if I preach not the gospel? Now, of course, these 12 had what our forefathers called an extraordinary call in the sense that they got to see Jesus visually, hear his voice audibly, and uh, be sent out by him. That's not going to happen to us today. Today, it's still a special call, but we call it an ordinary call. It's a call by Jesus Christ, inwardly applied by the Word and Spirit, and then externally confirmed by the church in calling a man to that particular body or to that mission field or whatever. The call to a pastor or to be a missionary, a church planner, is, is an inward call that is confirmed by the church of Jesus Christ. But now this call, this is the third call. Here Jesus is actually calling them to go out on their own. This is like um, we would say today a minister being installed into office. Now he, he, they're going out without Jesus at their side, you see. This is a third call that goes into gospel ministry itself. Verse 7 says, Jesus began to send them forth. He's thrusting them now from his side into a lost world, a dying world, saying, you will now join with me in the teaching and preaching of the gospel. I will go to this city, you will go to that city, and we'll come back together and we'll evaluate things. Yes, they were still in seminary in a way, but their teaching and preaching now became an extension of Jesus' teaching and preaching. His voice will be heard in their voices. His message will be heard in their messages. His mission will be their mission. They are now His ambassadors going out on His behalf. This is the regal and noble commission that has come down to them. Now, every Christian doesn't have this call in this full sense of the word. But every Christian has this call in some sense of the word. As soon as you're saved, you are called to go out into the world, as you always are. But now you're a different person, aren't you? You're called into the service of the Lord, not into full-time ordained ministry, But you're called to serve God wherever you are. In the place where God has put you. And your message is to be His message. Your words are to sound like His words. You are to think His thoughts after Him. And your mission really will be His mission. Because your desire will be that with your lifestyle and with your conversation, you might win others for Christ. And that you will be an extension of the Lord Jesus wherever He has planted you. As a mother at home. As a plumber. As a, a doctor. As a lawyer. As a student at school. As an electrical engineer. Your goal is not just to be an electrical engineer. Your goal Whatever you are, whether you're a businessman, your goal is to use your business or to use your your engineer work so that you might witness for Jesus Christ the gospel, that your life might display the gospel, that people might see Jesus in you. You're called to go forth in that way. Jesus calls the twelve to a very special ministry, but he calls every believer to his ministry. That's point two. Point three. Jesus sends them by twos. Jesus sends them by twos. Look at verse 7b. He began to send them forth by two and two. So there's 12. So 
That means there's six groups, right? Six groups of two. Why does Jesus do this? Why divide the twelve into six? Well, for two reasons. The first reason is to send two by two has been proven to produce more and better labor. That's a beautiful thing about a church when there's multi-ministry from from the pulpit. Um, In this church, we have actually three ministers, and we have a few others that can serve as well. So it's not just necessarily limited to by two. But what Ecclesiastes 4.9 says is two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. That's true in marriage, but it's also true in the church. Listen to J.C. Ryle. There can be no doubt that this fact is meant to teach us the advantages of Christian company for all who work together for Christ. The wise man had good reason for saying two are better than one. Two men together will do more work than two men singly. They will help one another in judgment, commit fewer mistakes. They will aid one another in difficulties and and less often feel success. They will stir one another up when tempted to idleness and less often relapse into indolence and indifference. They will comfort one another in times of trial. They are less often cast down. Woe to him that is alone when he falls, for he has not another to help him up. I think uh, Dr. Hoven and I, for example, have experienced this for years. We're, we're, we're not an impediment to each other. We actually strengthen each other's ministry because two are better than one. Iron sharpens iron. One man's weakness is another man's strength. We complement each other in, in gifts. That's how it's supposed to work. When there's two, there'll be mutual encouragement. There'll be mutual companionship when it works rightly. And praise be to God, we do have that good relationship in this church. And together with Simon Yin, there's, there's, a, there's a fellowship, there's a bond. This is our Lord's antidote, you see, for loneliness and temptation and discouragement and fatigue and confusion and depression in the ministry. Now, when there's a minister who's all alone, of course, in a church, he's got his elders surrounding him. So that principle still holds. And also in this church, there's more than two because there's also elders coming around supporting. But it's something special when two ministers can labor, two or more ministers can labor side by side in brotherly unity. John Calvin, for example, said of Veret and Farrell, we labored in Geneva as men that were closer than brothers. And he said, I don't know what I would have done without you two men because we supported one another. So Jesus is wise here, isn't he? He knows that there'll be more labor, better labor, when there's two rather than one. But secondly, when men go out two by two, it strengthens their witness of the truth. You've got another witness with you in a situation. You give the same advice to the same people. You see, Jesus is saying, when you go out two by two, you're going to be stronger in your witnessing for the truth. You're going to be stewards of the gifting, the teaching, the training, the equipping that's been given to you. God forbid that we'll simply take his truth and gospel in without passing it on. And when you have two, that passing it on just becomes all the stronger. And, well, that applies to us all. Too today, if you're, if you're a true Christian, you know that when you go out with another true Christian and you evangelize someone, you, you, you feel stronger, don't you, with someone else supporting, supporting at your side. Uh, I did a wedding yesterday in Lansing, and uh, Dr. Kelderman was, was with us because he's friends of that family as well, and we were together uh, with our wives, we, we evangelized a man who was sitting next to us in between the wedding and the reception. And it was, it was a much better evangelization session because 
I had him at my side, and together we were saying the same things to him. And by the end of it, the man said, okay, I will definitely stop listening to Joel Osteen, and I'm going to start listening to some of you sounder ministers, and he's going to go on sermon audio. He promised us he would do that and listen to sermons. Now, he wasn't converted right there in the spot, but it was, it was a form of evangelization. And because there were two of us, it was stronger. So Jesus sends them out two by two. That's his wisdom. Point four, Jesus gives them authority. Look at, look at 7c. He called unto him the twelve, began to send them forth two by two, and gave them power. Power over unclean spirits. The word power here can also be translated authority. Power means the right to use power. So Jesus marks them out in pairs, and then he confers on them authority that is the right and the power to act in a certain way, to perform a certain action or actions. In this case, it's to perform bringing the gospel that he had taught them so that it would come with divine authority, not as the authority of scribes and Pharisees, but as the authority of Jesus Christ himself. He gives that authority. And that's particularly true of the ministry. There's an authority that ministers receive that, of course, can be abused when it's uh, held wrongly or activated wrongly. But a minister of the gospel, you see, must speak the Word of God wherever he goes. And when he speaks the Word of God in an ordained capacity, he has the authority of the very Christ who sends him. Now, that's a solemn responsibility. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. But it's also a gift to the church. It's a gift to you that you have ministers who, in God's name, clothed with the authority of God, based on His Word of God, trained in the Word of God, bring you that Word. From the minister's side, we just cry out, Lord, who's sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient to be the mouthpiece of God? It's overwhelming. But from your side, you see, you are called to be beseeching God that your ministers will be faithful in being the ambassadors of Jesus Christ. But by giving them this authority, you see, Jesus is saying to these men, Yes, you're not sufficient for these things, but I am. And I give you the authority. I give you the authority through me to beseech sinners, be ye reconciled to God. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. My power shall be with you, and that power is not by your might nor by your power, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. And that is the most possible encouraging thing a minister of the gospel lives out of. That he doesn't preach in his own strength. It's God helping him. It's God clothing him with authority. And so, this is what gave these twelve the courage to go out. It's not easy to go out, even two by two, and, and confront people and talk to people about the one thing needful and challenge people about their lifestyle, or warn people and allure people. It's, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming also to be a preacher of the gospel, quite frankly. But when you have Christ, as John Owen said, at your elbow, when Christ is with you and the Holy Spirit is within you, empowering you, and your message is nothing but Jesus, to bring people to Jesus... You may feel clothed with authority. And now here again, as an individual believer, you don't have this in quite the same way. You're not ordained to it officially in the presence of the whole church. Although in a sense, when you make true confession of faith, you are saying that you will live your life for the sake of Christ. And you see, in another sense though, again, this is your calling as well, that you go out, you go out wherever you go, and you use the authority of the Bible, 
You use the authority of the Bible to, to bring things to people, to make them think, to make them consider their ways, to, to, to bring the gospel to them. So this man yesterday at the wedding, we were starting to evangelize him and, and uh, talk to him about the self-help method of, of Joel Osteen, which is an abomination, by the way, to the gospel. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. And he said, yes, but I feel good. I feel good listening to him. I said, where do you go to church, sir? Oh, he says, I don't go to church. I said, you don't go to, I thought you said you were a Christian. Well, I am a Christian. Do you believe the Bible? Absolutely, I believe the Bible. I said, well, you know, in the Bible, do you know, in Hebrews 10, it says you should, you should go to church every week. You should take your family to church. Well, but I work on Sundays. And I said, what about your wife? Well, yeah, I know she should go to, yeah, I know the kids should go to church, but I said, you need to get them in church right away. You're head of the household. That's what the Bible says. You believe the Bible. You say, if it wasn't for the Bible saying that, I wouldn't have had the courage to say that to that man. Of course not. What authority would I base it on? My feelings versus his feelings. But when you have the Bible as your authority, you see, then as an individual Christian, you can speak to others lovingly. You can draw them out, get, get close to them, and, and, and get interested in their lives. But then you can give guidance, loving guidance, from, and sometimes firm guidance, from the Bible. That has authority. Jesus gives these 12 authority. He gave them authority even to cast out demons. Of course, that was a special thing for a special age. Now, point five. Jesus charges them now to trust. Jesus charges them to trust. That's verses 8 through 10. Let me just read it to you as a whole, and you'll get the feel. And he commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey, save a staff only, no scrip, no bread, no money in their purse, but be shod with sandals and not put on two coats. And he said unto them, In what place soever ye enter into a house, there abide till ye depart from that place. What is this all about? Does it mean that today we should never have two coats in our house? No, of course not. This is a special calling at this time for these twelve Later on, of course, later on in Jesus' life, when he establishes the ministry in the Pauline epistles, Paul says, the laborer is worthy of his hire. That's the more ordinary New Testament age ministry. So this is something special here. But there's principles here too that we can learn from. We can learn from. Basically what Jesus is saying is, trust me. I charge you. I charge you in my name to trust me to meet all your needs. So carry only the bare essentials with you. You have your staff in your hand as a walking stick, but don't take a backpack full of food. Take only one item of clothing when you go to a town, and and you'll experience other people's charity there. I will take care of you. Do you believe me? Do you trust me? So what does this mean? Well, it means two things. First thing is faith. Jesus is asking for them to exercise faith as they go out. Faith in Jesus himself. Faith that Jesus will provide. Now, we need that same kind of faith today, don't we? Jesus says, don't care about what you wear and what you'll eat, because after these things the Gentiles seek. First, you, you first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All other things will be added to you. Same principle. You must have faith in me. I charge you to have faith in me. I will, I will care for you. Believe that I see your life. Believe that I'm watching over you. Believe that I will care what happens to you. Believe that I will provide food and lodging when you need it. Faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Things not seen. So what's the principle we get out of it today? Well, it's simply this. When you are willing to obey God and step out, not knowing where in the world the provision is coming from, but you know you're in God's circle, doing God's will, trusting God, God will provide. God will provide for you. God will provide also for the church. Let me, let me tell you something. I, I've, I've been 
in the ministry, as you know, for, for more than 40 years. I've sat through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of consistory meetings in three different churches. I've heard lots of talk at different times about this fund is low and that fund is low and how are we going to make ends meet. I, I've heard it, heard it like an old broken record. One time, and it was in this church, one time we got very low about 20 years ago. And we had to call a special meeting, special meeting of the whole consistory. What ministries were we going to cut out from our list because we could no longer afford it? The money just was not there. I came to the meeting with a heavy heart. I didn't want to cut out any of these ministries. And we sat down, opened the meeting. I turned to the deacons. I said, so what's, what's the report now? And the head deacon said, chairman deacon said, well, We've had a rather a surprise here, but someone left some money in the will, and it just came through since, since last Sunday. And actually now we can not only support everything, but we should have this meeting to discuss what to do with all the money we got. I mean, this is, this is God's provision. This happens not only in the church. This happens repeatedly in the seminary. It's happened how many times with, with a Christian school? How many times are we low? And God provides. And you make known His needs, and God speaks and God acts. So, yes, it's not exactly the same as it is today here in this situation in Mark 6, but the principle is the same. We need to have faith in God. When God has a ministry that He finds honorable in His sight, He will supply. Now, that doesn't mean we're foolish and rash and we spend all kinds of money unnecessarily. No, you've got to use your mind. But the point is this. God will take care of you when you put your trust in Him. So that's the first reason Jesus responds this way to His disciples. The second reason, however, is urgency. Urgency. People are dying all around them. People are going to hell. People haven't heard the gospel. You see, nothing can slow them down. That's the, that's the point of Jesus here. He commanded they should take nothing for their journey. You take some baggage. You take some uh, luxurious luggage. You take extra provisions for your own comfort's sake. Uh, that's not a po- vow of poverty. There's nothing to do with that. But it has everything to do with being shrewd and wise and going immediately on the mission and doing the work of the Lord, not getting bogged down with other things. It's not that they couldn't take anything. Jesus said, take a staff, a staff, a walking stick. You need, you need that when you're weary. You need to support your back so you can lean on it, because you're going to be doing a lot of traveling, men. But no script, no bread, no money in your purse. Live a life of faith, but an urgency. You see, there's, there's an urgency here about it. It's got to go right now. Don't put on two coats One is all you need. Uh, Just go out and go. Go. People are dying. You see, that's the point. The work of God is always urgent. It's not desperate because God's in control. It's not desperate. But it's urgent because sinners are dying every day around us. And so the point is this. If we're to fulfill our master's mission, there are often things we must let go of in our life. Luxuries, privileges, comforts, unnecessary additions that hold us back from spending the energy and the time that we need in our lives to really be intentionally evangelistic. Okay, is it sinful to take an extra shopping trip that you don't really need to do to the mall and spend an hour or two looking around? No, it's not sinful in itself. Of course not. But the question we need to ask ourselves is, what is our excess baggage in life? It's not that we can't take any time for recreation or take any time for something else legitimate in itself. But are we filling our lives with other things, extra coats and uh, excess baggage that we don't really need that takes us away from spreading the gospel? from reaching the world for Christ? Are we trying to go through this world with both our arms full and doing things, and we're so interested in so many things, we end up consuming all our time on ourselves? That's the question. 
Or are we really living, if you're a true believer, are you really living an evangelistic life? Is your thoughts go rather in this direction? Um, well, how can I help that, that poor soul over there that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ? How can I help that young man as he's struggling through college? How can I, how can I be the light of Christ to someone else, you see? This is the question. We need to stand before God. We need to turn the spotlight on our own lives. And we need to ask, what is really primary in life? Eternity is urgent. People are dying. Are we going to consume our lives with secondary things and let the eternal things go and not reach out to the needy? Or are we going to be servants of Christ? Charles Spurgeon said, better be a servant of the Lord than be a king over nations. Better be a servant of the Lord than be a king over nations. Better to launch out in His work and be used by Him to reach this world than to do anything else. Fulfill your time and your place here on earth. Be an evangelist wherever you are. That's the point. That's the point of this whole sermon. Realize that the primary mission is to reach the world with the gospel of Christ. Now you can do that with your money. You can do that with your prayers. You can do that with your feet and hands. You can do that with your whole lifestyle. I'm not asking you about the specifics of your life tonight. I'm just asking you, are you living an evangelistic life? Are you going out in one way or another doing the work of the Lord. Number six, Jesus confers upon them their task. Jesus confers upon them their task. Verses 12 and 13a, and they went out and preached that men should repent, and they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick. Combined it all together, you get two thoughts. Jesus gave them a preaching ministry and he gave them a mercy ministry. A preaching ministry and a mercy ministry. They went out and preached that men should repent. What did Jesus do? When he became a minister, when he was ordained, as it were, baptized into ministry, what did he do? He began to preach saying, Mark 1, repent. For the kingdom is at hand. So now when he sends them out, what did they begin to do? They went out to preach and they said, repent. You see, his voice, their voice becomes his voice. Their message is his message. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, wherever you see the word repent or wherever you see the word believe, you can imply the other word as well doesn't mean that they only preach repentance and not faith. You cannot preach repentance without faith. You cannot preach faith without repentance. Faith and repentance are two sides of one coin. Whenever someone believes, they penitently believe. Whenever someone repents, they believingly repent. The two belong together. So they went out and they preached. They preached the gospel. They preached specifically repentance, we're told. Preachers are to call people to repentance. And that for all of life. Martin Luther posted high in the list of his 95 theses that God would have his people live lifelong repentance. Every day, every believer needs to repent again. Not that your sins aren't forgiven, but you've committed fresh sins today. And you want to come to God with your needs in repentance. You want to keep a short Short leash with God, as the old divines used to say. A, a short, short list of sins with God. You want, you want fresh cleansing day by day. So what comes to your mind when you think of the word repent? Repentance is grieving over sin, yes. It's hating sin. It's turning away from sin. Fleeing sin. But it's also turning to God in Jesus Christ and having sweet communion with Him. It's an about face, you see. Repentance is sweet. There's nothing sweeter in this life than repentance. Because you repent at Jesus' feet 
and you receive His cleansing forgiveness. And there's a sweetness, there's a joy in that forgiveness that is unspeakable. It's peace that passes understanding. When you don't repent, that's when you're unhappy. That's when you're restless. That's when your conscience is like an agonizing worm inside of you, eating away at you. Unresolved issues in your life. Unresolved bitterness. Unresolved guilt. It's no way to live. He preached repentance. They preached repentance. There's a desire, you see, when under the preaching, you hear the need for repentance and, and the Spirit works through in you. you. You then want to come to Christ's mercy for free forgiveness of sin. And so, the question to all of us tonight is, have we, have we truly repented of our sin? Have we seen the holiness of God who will by no means clear the guilty? The enormity of sin. Do we understand that a day is coming when we're going to die and we need to be forgiven? We need to be washed clean in the presence of Christ. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, unprepared, impenitent. You can't live that way. You can't die that way. You can't stand before God that way. They went out and they preached repentance. And so must we. So must we. God will receive penitent sinners. God will forgive penitent sinners. His whole word is full of it. He will count you righteous. You'll become a child of God when by the grace of God you repent at His feet. He'll count you righteous for the sake of His Son who paid for your sin, who obeyed the law for you to set you free through the gospel. So this is the first ministry task that God gives them, the preaching ministry. But then Jesus gives them a second one, which I'm calling the mercy ministry. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. Exactly how that went, we, we don't really know. But they cast out devils, they anointed with oil, that many that were sick. They no doubt prayed with the sick, and God used it and blessed it. We read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. And there were all kinds of healings. Just as Jesus healed a lot of people, so did the apostles. Now, does God do wonderful healings today? Absolutely. But it's not the same as it was then. Then, you see, the, the sacred canon was not yet complete. And God used these special signs and wonders to spread the gospel everywhere. People were talking. Did you see that blind man healed? Wow, that was done by Jesus. That helped spread the gospel. But later on, you see, when the whole gospel is written out in the whole sacred canon, Paul says, I show you a more excellent way. And the more excellent way is the way of charity, the way of love, the love of the gospel, the love the gospel generates. And so now... You see, healings and things like that are inferior signs compared to the gospel. The Word of God is superior to these special signs and special wonders and mighty deeds. But for the spread of the gospel, Jesus gave this mercy ministry to his apostles. And today, what that means isn't that we go out and anoint people with oil and heal the sick. We don't have that power. But we do go out in mercy ministry. We go out and we pray with the sick. And we seek to give them means that may help them in their recovery. And we are zealous of good works if we do mercy ministry. We don't just do the word, we also do the deed. We don't just do the deed, but we also do the word. Hence the organization, word and deed. Word and deed belong together. Preaching ministry, teaching ministry, mercy ministry belongs together. That's what we can learn from this. It's not an either-or ministry. Either I'm a preacher or I'm a mercy man. No, no. All of us, if we're true believers, if we're true believers, are called to be teachers of others, teaching the gospel with our conversation, with our walk of life. But we're also called to do acts of mercy, to show mercy, to live mercy, to live out of the bowels of mercy, as one Puritan put it. To be a powerful, godly 
leaven in the earth. And then number seven. Jesus not only sets the example, calls the twelve, sends them by twos, gives them authority, charges them to trust, confers upon them their task, but number seven, he advises them about the outcome. He advises them about the outcome in verse 11 and 13b. And let me read them to you. Verse 11. And whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. And then 13b. And healed them. So the outcome is, 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 is bifurcated. There's rejection and there's healing. But you see, in God's book, both of them, in a sense, are triumphant. Second Corinthians 2, Paul says, we triumph always. See, there's no, there's really, in the ultimate sense of the word, there's no defeat in gospel preaching. Because for those who reject it, God glorifies His justice. Those who receive it, God glorifies His grace and mercy. Either way, God is glorified. Is He more glorified when people receive it? Well, yes. Paul says that somewhere in 2 Corinthians. That's the supreme glory of God. But God's glorified in both. Christ is both a savior of death unto death and life unto life. Death unto death in His justice, life unto life in His grace and mercy. And both, you see, are in this passage. Jesus is saying, when you go out, commissioned by me, don't expect everyone to accept what you say. But don't worry about that either. Here's directions. Here's how you're to handle rejection. Verse 11. Whosoever shall not receive you nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Again, they're following the example of Jesus, right? Jesus came into his own and his own received them not. He had to leave Nazareth, verse 6, because of their unbelief. He could do no mighty miracles there. Now, what does that mean, shake the dust off under your feet? Well, there was an ancient custom in Israel that when people traveled outside the land of Israel, they were in Gentile land, and as they would approach the border when walking back to the land of Israel, they'd take off their sandals and brush off all the so-called dirty Gentile dust, and they'd walk into the holy land on holy soil. In this way, they were declaring, you Gentiles, you are unclean. But Christ flips this all around by saying as they go around and round from village to village, Jewish village to Jewish village, if the Jews reject the gospel, his gospel, Jesus' gospel, they should shake off the dust from their sandals of this Jewish village and this Jewish territory as a testimony against Jewish unbelievers. And say, God is rejecting you and punishing you because you're rejecting the message of His only begotten Son. You're not in favor with God. You're rejecting the covenants of God. You are now, you Jews are now the unclean, not the Gentiles. That's a powerful testimony. It's a powerful testimony. And it becomes more solemn at the end of verse 11. Verily I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment, those cities that were engaging in the abominable sin of sexual perversion, then for that city that rejects you, you teams of two. Jude 7 says of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities about them in like manner who gave themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth in the Bible for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. But Jesus says, when you reject me and my message and you persist in unbelief, you are more guilty than Sodom and Gomorrah. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. Maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're unconverted, but you look down on homosexuals, don't you? And, you, and they're, they're perverted sins. And you say, well, at least I'm not like that. 
But I say to you in love tonight, what Jesus is saying is it'll be worse for us when we sat under the gospel all our lives. If we go lost and don't repent and do reject the gospel, it shall be worse for us on the day of judgment because the hell of hell is reserved for those who rejected the gospel that they heard their entire lives. It's a solemn thing to be under the gospel and to reject it. That's what Jesus is saying. Who will suffer more in hell? I mean, everyone will suffer in hell. Terribly suffer. But who will suffer more in hell? A radical, impenitent Muslim in Iraq or a covenant child who grew up in a reformed household under the gospel? It's the latter. That's what Jesus is saying. Luke 12 puts it this way, That servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his Lord's will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But they that do not know and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes because they did not know. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. And to whom men have committed much of him, they will ask the more. Oh, what a solemn thing it is. Yes, God's justice will be glorified, but what a solemn thing it is when a minister goes out and preaches the Word and people reject it. Reject it. The only thing that can give them life. The only thing that can give them eternal life. And that's why Jesus says when you go out, you must plead with the people. Your preaching must be a pleading preaching, a begging preaching, a commending preaching, an inviting preaching, an alluring preaching. It must have a compelling character about it. You are preaching the message of life and death forever and forever. Sinners will go to heaven or they'll go to hell. Oh, there's no greater joy to any true servant of Christ, one duly commissioned by Him in the way of His appointment through His church and anointed by His Spirit than to preach and proclaim that the message of Jesus is a message of deliverance, of healing, of life and power. There's no greater joy than to see sinners respond to that message by the grace of the Holy Spirit and repent of their sins and come to the Savior. But oh, what a judgment awaits What a solemn thought it is that the Word would be a savor of death unto death. But we end with good news tonight because Christ's message is also savor of life unto life. The end of verse 13 says, and many were healed. Healed, you see. Jesus advises them, some will reject, some will receive, some will be healed. And this is not just a healing of diseases. This is a healing also of the soul. It's possible sometimes when you're a minister of the gospel, church planner, missionary, that you can be so discouraged, so discouraged when people can sit year after year after year after year rejecting, 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 rejecting the one gospel that can save them. It's like seeing a child going, going lost into the world and you know that a train wreck is waiting to happen. It can be so discouraging when you see little or no fruit upon your labor. And yet, God is glorified. But how awful to stand before Him on the day of days and say, Lord, I don't have an answer to a thousand of Thy questions. All I know is that Thy justice will be glorified in my eternal damnation because I refused to bend the knee to Jesus Christ while I was alive Oh, dear congregation, don't go that way. The gospel is open to the greatest sinners sitting here tonight. Don't go on. Bend your knees. Confess your sin. Bow at the feet of Jesus Christ. Surrender your life to Him. If you say, well, I can't do it. The Holy Spirit can. 
And he's able. And he's willing. He's as willing as Christ is willing to give his blood. He's as willing as the Father is willing to decree the salvation of a multitude no man can number. Just fall upon him and say, Lord, do against my will what needs to be my will. Change me from within. Lead me to repentance. Just don't let me go on my own way. And do, for those of you, for those of you who do know the Lord, do rejoice in His mercy with joy unspeakable. And do say, it's only the sheer, one-sided, sovereign, glorious grace of God that brought me to respond to the gospel and bend the knee before the King of Kings. And He healed even me. And if He can heal even me, He can heal anyone, anyone in the entire world. So go out and tell others of the wonder of the gospel. That you are commissioned by Jesus. Wherever you are, to tell others the good news of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Gracious God, please, please help us, if we're believers, to realize that our lives need to be lived intentionally to bring the gospel to others wherever there is an opening. Give us wisdom to do that and insight to know what to do, what not to do. And do bless our efforts, even though we expect rejection as well as reception. And do, Lord, save the lost among us. Oh, God, our hearts bleed for them. Save those boys and girls who have never yet become a lost sinner before Thee and learn to find hope in Christ alone. But also teenagers and adults, oh God, work salvation in them and commission us to, with walk and talk, to be disciples, genuine disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Go with us this week to that end. Give us opportunities this week to evangelize others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.